you have your Bibles, turn them to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read part of this. I'm not going to read the whole chapter uh, today, but I am going to start in verse 15. Well, actually, let's start in verse 14 and read it to the end of the chapter. So now hear God's word, chapter 3 of Genesis, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've been looking at Genesis, and it's very easy to uh, read Genesis and say, well, this is just a myth, it's just a fable, uh, and I would, I would caution you against that. But the reason that we consider it a myth or a fable is because we try to make it speak to the 20th and 21st century world, and that is not how this book is written. This book is written not as historiography, but as an historical account of just very small snippets of things that happened. So it is a mistake to take it scientifically. The Bible has, has, uh, is not a scientific book, and nor is it speaking scientifically. So Genesis, this account, is not an account of how God created the world. It's just not. And to make it do that is to misuse the Scriptures. So it's not a scientific. It's not talking about material or scientific origins. It's not saying how the creation came into being. It is saying who created and why. Who created and why. Now it does say a little bit about how and as far as This is as far as it goes. He created the world by His Word and by His Spirit. That's all He says. There's no more than that. And so to start imposing on that 
either from the evolutionary side or the creationist side to start imposing your ideas. You're just talking theory and you can make up all the theories you want, but understand this. Evolution is a theory and so is six-day creationism. They are both theories. They're just ideas that people come up with to explain what they see and observe. And you can do that. That's not the problem. The problem is we're going to take Genesis as it comes to us. And this book was written to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab just as they're getting ready to go into the promised land and God is explaining to them how all this came about and why. Why are they there? Why are they going into the land? What is their job? What is their purpose? What is their meaning? Genesis, especially these first three chapters, answer the big questions of life, the huge questions, the questions that everyone has, regardless of your religious background, whether you're Christian or Jew or Muslim or Buddhist, or it doesn't matter. It speaks to every human being. It, it addresses issues about evil, about suffering. Who doesn't think about those things? About pain and injustice and hatred and war and racism and gender inequity between men and women. Every kind of thing you can imagine is addressed in these first few chapters. It's truly remarkable. It's sublime in its brilliance, especially considering it was written thousands of years ago. And so to take it and make it say things it doesn't say, I caution you not to do that, and I try not to do that, and I will help you as much as I can. Don't let the Bible say more than it says, and certainly don't take away anything that it says. Let's stay with what it says. So it is historic literature. It's telling a history, but not comprehensively, And it is also telling a history in a literary way. In other words, it's using lots of symbols. It's using uh, repetitions. It's using poetry. It's using chants. It's using songs. It's using all kinds of things in order to communicate in a way that will be relevant. Listen to this. It'll be relevant then, relevant now, and relevant in another 3,000 years. Anybody will be able to read this and go, wow. This makes sense. So very quickly, let me give you a summary of how we're, how we're breaking this down, just these first few chapters. Chapter 1 through verse, chapter 2, verse 3, that little section there is called the prologue. And it's about how God put together this universe out of tohu v'bohu, out of the chaos and the void, the formless and the void. And what He did, on day 1, He forms... Light. And he separates light from darkness. And on day four, he populates that arena of light and dark with sun, moon, and stars. On day two, he creates the sea and the sky. And on day five, he populates that area with fish and fowl. This is the way human beings could look out at any time in history, you can look out and say, well, sky and, and water, fish and fowl. You see, it's very simple, but it's not scientific. And then on day three, he creates the dry land at the earth and he puts plants there because on day six, he's going to bring animals 
and creeping things and human beings which will need to have food. And it's all built in a very rhythmic way. It's almost a song. It's not strictly poetry, but it was meant, this first prologue was meant to be memorized. It was meant to be chanted out. It was meant to be recalled around a fire, uh, a place in the wilderness to explain how things are and why things are the way they are. And then in chapter 2, you have what we have called life inside the garden. Very brief, very pointed. It's about man and God and their life just inside the garden. And it's not, you know, it's, we don't know how long they were there together. We don't know how, any time frame, nothing. It was just a picture, a snapshot, if you will, of what life was like in the garden. Humanity was to do the same thing. Listen, this is, our, this is why you exist, folks. This is why it's so important. We exist to form and to fill the earth with the glory of God. Every day you go to work, every day you go to school, every day you come to church, every day you go out and, and enjoy your recreation, hunting, fishing, uh, 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 I don't know, what else do people do? Cycling, walking, riding, whatever you do for recreation. All that we are do, doing is to communicate, to form and to fill the earth with the image of God. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the image of God. Not exploit the earth, but steward and take care of the earth. And not to worship the creation, but to worship the Creator. And so, this is your job. This is what every human being has put on the earth, especially Christians. We're supposed to see that. We are not put here so that we can just suffer our whole lives and then die and go to heaven and float around on a cloud with a harp. That isn't, that's not what's going to happen. If you die, you may go to heaven, but only for a brief time, and then you're going to do what? You're going to be resurrected and come back here. And so we're to invest our lives in this world. We're to invest our lives in people, in family, in our involvement with our community, and so on and so forth. We are to be light and salt all around us to form and fill the earth and do what is right in God's sight. But then in chapter 3, which is the second act of this, this play that is being played out in these first few chapters, the second act is the serpent who is found in the garden. Not a lot of explanation about the serpent. We don't hear about him much anymore. He's kind of there and then he's gone and you don't see him again until later. You see him in the wilderness with Jesus. You see him in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. And you see him at the end of time getting crushed completely. You don't see much of him anymore. But he comes into the creation and he sows discord. He brings chaos back and he finds willing participants, Adam and Eve. And then chapter 4, which we'll look at next week, we'll pick up with 4, is life outside the garden. What I've shown you is this. Look, here's chapter 4. Now this Bible that I have right here has no notes in it, it's just the text. Okay? There's just nothing, no commentary, not even a cross-reference. And from there to this right here, let me show you, because this is a powerful visual. Okay, that's it. This is life outside the garden. 
Everything you read in your Bible from chapter 3 to chapter 21 of the Revelation is life in the wilderness, outside the garden. And it's us and what we are facing. And there are stories and stories and stories of good people who are having to face that same tohu vabohu, that same chaos, that same formless and void, and having to push their, 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 themselves into it and wrestle with it and fight with it and trust God during that whole battle. And there isn't going to be a day that goes by that you're not going to be battling with something, either something out there or in here. But every day of your life is spent, as Rick likes to say, one of our elders is pushing back the thorns and the thistles, pushing back the darkness. That's our life, and it's okay. We're doing what we were made to do. And we have the Holy Spirit, and we have everything we need to do that. So life outside the garden is what we'll look at starting next week, and that's the rest of your Bible, folks you put it into that context, things start to make sense. You go, you know, this makes sense. I see what's going on here. Without it, you'll get lost. You won't know what's going on. Genesis is, it's imperative to understand at least the first few chapters of Genesis and why we went from Revelation and we jumped all the way over to, to Genesis and we'll spend a couple months in here and look at the life uh, as, as it's described to us in these first 11 chapters, what's called the primeval, primeval history. Verses 20 through 24, look at this. If you don't have your Bible, it's printed in your uh, bulletin, but you can look at that. This is a transition. It's taking us from life in the, life in the garden outside into the chaos, okay? And uh, so God had told Adam and Eve, remember this, the day you eat of this tree, now the tree wasn't magical, it was uh, something else, and I've described it at length in the past weeks, I don't want to go over it again, but if you think of it just as a tree, then you'll think there's something magic about the fruit, and oh my goodness, they ate it and they got poisoned. Or you'll think of the tree of life as, oh, it's some kind of great tree that's magic, and when I eat it, I will have eternal life. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here, the trees were symbolic. They may have been literal trees. We don't know. Look, this is literal bread, literal wine. But no one in here believes that this is literally the body of Christ. Now, there are churches that teach that. We do not. And that this is literally His blood. We do not teach that in this church. But in our theology, in Reformed theology, we believe that Christ is indeed present in the body and present in the blood to an extent that He communicates life to you when you take the Holy Sacrament. We do believe that. That it is really communicated to you. It's real. The same way that when you go to lunch today, that nutrition will feed your body and you will live. This will feed your soul and you will live if it's mixed with your faith. And that's what these trees were all about. To miss that is to miss the message that is there. The trees were there. They were good trees. Both of them were good trees. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was a good tree. And the tree of life was a good tree. And they had their function. God just said, don't eat from that one. I don't want you to, to know good and evil. I only want you to know good. 
I've created everything good and you're in the garden. No good. No me. But they weren't satisfied. And so we see death. We see pain. Pain in childbirth. Pain in their toil. The day you eat, you will die. And we see alienation. We see alienation between the serpent and the woman. Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which becomes symbolically Cain, the seed of the serpent were just those people who refused to believe in God. And the seed of the woman were those people who, as we will see in the next chapter, begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So there would be alienation between the serpent and his seed, between spouses. Look, uh, you know, I don't know about you guys, but uh, uh, I've made no, no bones about it that Mahdi V rules the roost. There's no conflict. <laughs> no, I mean, look, we have conflict. We have conflict in our families. We have conflict with our children. There's going to be pain in childbearing. What parent doesn't agonize? Maybe your kid's great kids. I don't know, but you worry, don't you? You're concerned when they get in the car, don't you? They make apps now that you can watch your children drive and you can see how fast they're going. And we are praying for you because you're one sick puppy if you're doing that to your children. All right, so you get the picture, right? I mean, come on. We worry about our kids, and then we're alienated from one another. You know, half of you I don't like. No, No, think about it. I mean, they're just, and conflict, political conflict. Oh, our our country's out of its mind right now. Losing its ever-loving mind. So, there's All of this is introduced in chapter 3 and it explains why and how things are the way they are. And if you get a grip on it, if you get a hold of it, you can start to see and it won't take you down. It won't cut your legs off so that you're just in a puddle. It will keep you steady. It will be the anchor of your soul. It will lead you through the hard places in life and it will give you an enormous amount of joy when things are going right and it will give you joy when things are going wrong and you need to be propped up when you need to be held up so you don't sink. All of this in just these few little chapters, it's brilliant, utterly. And we read it like it's a fable and a cartoon and we make it say things it doesn't say. Read it for how it is, folks, and it will bring light to your soul. So let's look at three things. First of all, the mother of the living, the skins of the dead. That's the second thing. The mother of the living, the skins of the dead. And thirdly, we're going to look at the flaming sword and the grace of God. Very quickly, the mother of the living. Adam names her Eve which in Hebrew means life or living, mother of the living. And what it says to us and what it says to uh, Israel out on the plains of Moab, what it says to all humanity is that Adam believed, verse 15 of chapter 3, he believed that someone from his seed, some one of his children, would come and crush that serpent who caused us all this problem. He believed the gospel and so did his wife. And because they believed the gospel, they were able to give life to this world, not death. He did not say, Eve, you've messed up. You're the worst wife. I don't know. I should have married the other one. That was funny. All right, never mind. All right. 
He didn't call her the mother of the dead. He called her the mother of the living. And you see that those people that follow the genealogies are there for this reason. To show us that there were people that actually believed the promise of 315. That the seed would come and would crush the head of serpent. Now, they didn't, know, they, they didn't know what it was. They didn't have a full view of it yet. But they did believe it. Eve's naming, listen. Eve's naming as mother of living suggests that they heard the promise of verse 15 and believed it in faith. They, look, people in the Bible have always been made right with God one way. Old Testament, New Testament, same thing. They looked forward to a promise and they trusted that word of God. We look back to the promise fulfilled. They looked forward to a promise made. We look back to a promise fulfilled. But it is the same promise, it is the same faith, and the means by which all people from Adam and Eve till today have gotten into the kingdom of God is one way, and that way is by grace, through faith. Through grace, by faith. Whatever you want to put it, it was grace is the means Faith is the basis of every human being that ever lived. Old Testament people did not get into the kingdom of God because they uh, obeyed the Ten Commandments and neither will you. You've already broken them all anyway. Unless you're a little bitty thing over there, one of Andrew's little girls, they're okay, they're safe. But the rest of you have broken all ten. I broke eight of them this morning. I won't tell you which eight they were. Okay, I mean, really? Don't go to God on the basis of that. This text is telling us you don't go to the base. You don't go to God on that. I'm going to show you. It just blows my mind when I read it. I get so excited. I just don't want to do anything else but read chapter three. Now that's sick. I need prayer. There's nothing good about that. All right. They looked forward to a promise. We look back. Same promise. Ours is fully formed. We can look in His face. We can touch the nails, uh, scars in His hand. We can eat His body and drink His blood. They were looking forward to something else, but it was the same promise, same hope, same faith, same everything. That should just fire your jets. Our lives are lived in that same hope. We all live in what we've called over and over and over again over the years. I've told you it's already, but not yet. It's already present. They were living in that same already, but not yet that we live in. The same already and not yet. And I'll tell you, Christianity will simply make no sense. Absolutely. In fact, it'll be frustrating and it'll be wear you down if you don't see that this life is an already, but not yet. And that you are going, how come it can't all be wonderful? Well, you know what? Have any of you been to Disneyland? You walk into Disneyland, it's the happiest place on earth. Right? There's a sign out there that says the happiest place on earth. Have any of you been there? Happiest place on earth. Well, I lived in Orlando for six years. It's not the happiest place on earth. And the reason it's not is because there are people coming out of that same gate. They're going in, they're happy, adults are acting like idiots, children are screaming and yelling, can't wait to get inside, obeying every word because they've been threatened. But now we're going out, I don't have to obey you anymore, mom and dad. I can be crazy and I can be naughty and I can do whatever and I'm going to scream all the way to the parking lot. 
It's not the happiest place on earth. And we live in a world like that. It's mixed up. And what's going to carry you through? What's going to float you through? What is going to make it possible for you to get out of the boat in the storm and walk on the water to Jesus Christ? It's going to be fixing your eyes on Him and looking to Him. They did it. They had to. What about the skins of the dead? Look at this. It's it's just incredible. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments for them and clothed them. There is nothing in these verses other than, and now listen to me very carefully, there is nothing in these verses other than love and compassion and tender mercy. God coming to the wickedest and worst people that started this whole mess and coming to them and embracing them. He made the skins for them. He clothed them. It's the most tender thing you can imagine. And we just kind of breeze over it. The animal sacrifices and blood atonement were certainly in view there. Certainly they're kind of there. But it wasn't fully there yet. He's just taking care of them. Why? Because they couldn't be in His presence naked. Uncovered. Covered with sin. They couldn't be in His presence. And what else did we just read? They couldn't be in one another's presence. They had tried to, because they saw they were naked, they tried to cover up their nakedness. And in pure grace and love and kindness, He makes for them coats. In other words, head to toe. They had fig leaves, which just would have covered, you know, one or two little places. And, And that's all they had. It wasn't enough. He clothes them so they can be together. And He clothes them so they can be with Him. And yes, He's looking forward to covering their sin as well. But folks, don't you see the tenderness, the love and the care of this God who does for them what they can't do for themselves. Dr. Brueggemann says God does for the couple what they cannot do for themselves. They, listen, listen to me, I beg you, they cannot deal with their shame. But He can. What are you going to do with your shame? Just redefine it and say, I'll just redefine sin, that's not sin, so I have no shame. Well, good luck with that. Half the mental problems in our country today are because we don't believe in sin. We don't know how to grieve. We don't know how to lament. We don't know how to break before God and get on our knees and say, I'm helpless before you. I need you. And a person that does that, that goes down on their knees and says, I can't make it without you. That's the first step to healing. If you've been in AA, that's step one. Admit you're powerless and you need a power. Well, this is the power for goodness sakes. And it's all in the first three chapters, folks. You don't have to read the whole Bible if you don't want to. Lost for you. But read the first three, for goodness sakes. It'll take you ten minutes. God makes gracious provision for them, and He continues doing it throughout the rest of your Bible. In fact, that's what most of it is, is God coming into the chaos and making provision by grace for His people who trust Him, and even for some that don't. He's just full of that. 
So we've seen the mother of the living. You saw with the skins, the skins of the dead. Those dead animals who had done nothing other than do what they were supposed to. And God continues to make provision for us. Listen, your Bible is full of it. Bread from heaven, water from a rock, streams in the desert. See, rock, desert, heaven. None of you can get bread from heaven. None of you can get water from a rock. None of you can get streams in the desert unless God provides. And it continues. Bread from heaven, streams in the desert, water from the rock. This is my body given for you. Hoc est corpus meum. This is my blood for the remission of your sins. Do you see? He's continually made provision for us every day of our lives. And that brings us to the flaming sword. Look at 22. and uh, Behold, mankind has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he take and reach out and take the tree of life and live forever. That's parenthetical. Then he says, the Lord sent him out. He drove him out. And we hear in those words, and I'm sure that you've read it like I have, we hear in their harshness, like God is mad, and He's stamping His foot and saying, darn you, I'm kicking you out of the good place, I'm going to make you go back into Orlando now that you've been in Disneyland. And He's, he's harsh. But let me tell you this, if you read it the way it's meant to be read, folks, you will hear compassion. You will hear grace. You will hear mercy. Dr. Walke in his amazing commentary says this, in their fallenness, listen to this, this is brilliant, this is stunning. In their fallenness, humans must not participate in immortality. So death, listen to this, death is both judgmental, but it's also a release. It's judgmental, but it's also a release. Now, I've had two cancers. I've had two stage three cancers in different parts of my body. And I was glad that I got well after much treatment. But I can tell you something. What would it be like to get it and have it and just have it and have it and have it and have it and you don't die, you don't get well, you don't get nothing? But pain and pain and misery and pain and more pain and more misery and more darkness and more heartache and more and more and more and then tomorrow more and more and the next day and the next day and it's never relieved. The most gracious thing God could have possibly done is let these people die. Why? Why would He do this? Why we see it as harshness? And it's not harsh, my friends. Think of the condition we're in. There is a place in every one of our minds we know. We know that it's better somewhere. We know it's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to be this agony, this heartbreak, this mental, the, 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 the heartache, the, all of it. There's not supposed to be that way. We know it in our bones. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. Everybody knows it's not right. 
And we spend our life trying to fill it up with stuff, with money, with approval, with fame, with fortune, whatever it is. And everything leaves us parched and dry and we're not satisfied. We still want something else. And what we're longing for, let me just put it quickly because I want to finish. What, we, what we're longing for is death and resurrection. We're longing for judgment and for release. We want to be let go. We want to put off this mortal coil. We want to pass through the veil of tears. We hear harshness, but we should hear compassion. We should hear grace and mercy. I'm going to let them, I'm not going to let them live forever. No, I'm going to put them to death. And I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to rebirth them. And how do you know that? Well, look. The tree, now let me, let me put it for very plainly. Listen carefully. The tree is guarded by a cherubim, but it is not denied. He guards it. He puts them out there and posts it. He puts a flaming. The cherubim was a lion, the body of a lion that had two heads. One head was a lion. One head was a human being. This was not just a good-looking guy with long hair and a couple of wings. It was a terrifying beast that, yes, had wings, but it was a lion that had wings, and it had two heads and a flaming sword. It was terrifying. Ezekiel describes it in detail in Ezekiel chapter 41. We know exactly what cherubim look like. They're all over everything in the ancient Near East. Every pyramid in uh, Egypt and every tablet they've dug up, everything full covered with these things. And Israel was no different because they were real. God made them. The tree was guarded, but not denied. There was an entrance in the east, and you could go there, but what would happen to you if you did? You would die because the cherubim is there with his flaming sword going every which way. But it wasn't destroyed. The garden was still there. The tree was there. The, temp- the tree and the garden are the temple of God. That's still there. You just can't go in. And that's what gave rise to everything else that's in your Bible, folks. All those stories about the temples and the tabernacles and the altars and the lambs getting killed and everything, all that, all is pointing right here to the garden, the temple, the garden. Access to the tree was guarded. The the cherubim, the tree was a sacrament. It was participation in the life of God. But because we sinned, we couldn't go have His life anymore. How? How would you do it? Trot out your good works. Oh, look how good I've been today. You know that doesn't work. So comes the release. The release. The presence of the tree is the promise. Listen. The presence of the tree of life is the promise of new life. It's the promise. What God holds out to us. He holds it out and He says here, will you trust me? Will you believe this? If you do, I'll bring you in. But you have to pass under the sword. You are going to have to die. You're going to have to be crucified and put to death. Otherwise, you can't come in. 
You can come in. Here it is. You can have that sacrament in a few minutes, five minutes. You can have this. But you've got to die first. You have to pass under the sword. Justice and mercy, they have to meet somewhere, folks. I mean, really? How are you gonna, what are you going to do? Just say, Ali, Ali, oxen free? That's not enough. No, justice and mercy have got to come together. They've got to kiss, like J.I. Packer said. Justice and mercy have to kiss. Where's that kiss? How do you get past that sword? I'd like to know. What, what, next week, come to the Q&A and let's talk about how, what do you think? How do you get back in? How do you get under, how do you get around that sword? You know, in the temple, they had this veil that was very thick and it was embroidered. Do any of you know what it was embroidered with? Hundreds, just all this gold embroidery? Cherubim. Cherubim were embroidered on the veil. What was that? That was the entrance to the garden. Behind that veil was the Holy of Holies, and nobody went in there. You know that, right? And do you know what was inside there? These huge lampstands with seven stylistic, they were menorah. They were stylistic images of the tree of life. And there it is for all eternity. First it was a tabernacle, then it was a temple, and it's still there today, and there it is. You can look at it. Here it is on the table. You can see it. And, and God is saying, come on. Come have it. Come take of the tree of life and eat. Pass under the sword. Die. And the Apostle Paul said that to be a Christian means I am crucified with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not me, but Christ in me. You see, the whole story of the Bible ends in another garden, folks. It ends with another serpent. The same serpent, but another thing. Another devil who's appearing to Jesus and telling him, don't go to the cross, don't pass under the sword. Don't go. Don't go. And Jesus says, Thy will be done, not my will be done. And let me tell you something, folks. Jesus went straight to the temple. And instead of a temple, He found a garbage dump. And instead of the tree of life, he found a cross waiting for him. And he climbed the cross for you and for me. He got right up there. And when he did, when he passed under the sword for you and for me, the temple, Matthew says, the the veil in the temple was rent. It was torn from top to bottom. And the gates of the Garden of Eden were reopened. The cherubim stood aside because the great King of glory who can enter in, Psalm 24, He enters in. And He makes a way for us to enter in so that you don't have to die, so that you don't have to pass under the sword as Dave prayed in his prayer, so that you could be counted as having died. 
He dies so that you can pass into the garden and take from the tree of life, which you're going to do in a minute, and actually live and not die. Kathy Keller, the wife of Tim Keller, she says Jesus' tomb, she wrote this, Jesus' tomb was opened not to let him out. But to let us in. The way, the way back in is into a tomb. That's how you get in. Through his death, through his resurrection, through his blood. And there's no resisting it. Listen, let me finish with this. Listen to these words. They are stunning. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, O Lord, but a body you have prepared for Me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure in. Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God. Just as it's written of Me, in the scroll. By that, the writer says, we have been sanctified or set apart for life through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. We have confidence to enter the holy place. The veil has been rent. It's torn. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way that He opened for us through the veil that is His flesh. He was torn apart so we could go in. He passed under the sword so you and I can go in. He bore the judgment that we were due so that we could go in and have fellowship and commune with Him around the tree of life. Him, the real tree of life. He opened it through the veil that is His flesh. And since, listen, since we have this great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near. There's nothing That should keep you away, my friends. Nothing should keep you away from God. I'm too bad. I'm too awful. No. It's impossible for you to be too bad. Because I'm worse than you. I know that. You don't, but I do. And you know that you're worse than... We know. We know the sword was for us, but He got the sword. We have a great priest... Over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. Your faith isn't enough. But He's faithful. So all He's asking is for you to trust Him. And then it's enough. It's enough. Will you? Will you trust Him? You know, folks, if you haven't, you sh- come to Him today. Lay it down. Say, I'm done. I'm done with all this junk. I need you. And run to Jesus. Run to Him. Bring your junk with you. He's good at taking care of junk. It's His specialty. 
He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be called the righteousness of God in Him. He knows how to deal with our shame and our guilt. I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, how can we ever imagine what you've done for us? You are so great and so good and full of compassion. You did not leave us racked with sin and death. But you brought us through under the sword so that we might live again and have a new birth. And I pray, Father, that for all of us that we would revisit that new birth today and every day. That we will say yes to you and yes to what you're saying to us. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come learn about me. Help us do it, Father, I pray. Amen.